am delighted, believe it or not, to be here and be able to share God's word with you today. Um, yeah, I got, I, I'd, I'd actually been called earlier in the week and asked if I'd be willing uh, to be the sub and kind of thought I was off the hook and then suddenly yesterday morning, oh, okay, sure. Okay, thanks, Lord. And I know it's been good for me to prepare as rapidly as I did, and I pray that what I have to share will be from the Lord and his word will speak to us this morning. Will you pray with me? Lord God, thanks for the chance to worship together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, what a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to sing and to worship and to pray. What a privilege it is to encourage one another. What a privilege it is to look at your word together because we know your word brings life and restores us, Lord. And so I pray that your word would do that now as we look at it together. And I pray that your spirit would speak through me in, in whatever way you choose, O Lord. And we thank you and pray all this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the preacher was visiting a, a church that belonged to a friend of his, a small country church. And uh, he, as was his custom, had asked if he could teach the kids Sunday school class. And apparently the kids in this particular small church all kind of had Sunday school together. And as the preacher was teaching, um, he asked if any of the kids could recite from memory the 23rd Psalm. Now, as an aside, if I were to ask that today, how many of us, kids or adults, would raise our hands? I'm not certain uh, when scripture memorization went by the wayside, uh, but perhaps it's something we could encourage to do again. But at any rate, a number of the kids raised their hands and said they could recite the 23rd Psalm, and among them was a little four-year-old girl right there on the front row. And the visiting preacher was a bit skeptical, but some of the other adults there said, well, yeah, I think she can. And, and so the preacher asked her to come forward, and she came up, and, and uh, she took a little bow, and she proudly said, the Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. <laughs> and she bowed, and she sat down again. Now, the little girl may have slightly abbreviated the 23rd Psalm, um, but perhaps she actually kind of got the heart of it um, just right. And that's the scripture that I want us to look at today. We are in the midst of a, of a, of a sermon series called Favorites, uh, which gives us the opportunity, whoever's preaching, uh, to preach on whatever our favorite passage is. And there are lots of favorites that all of us have, but I dare say that the 23rd Psalm is a favorite of many folk. Um, we have probably um, heard it, read it, memorized it, heard it, certainly cited at numerous funerals. Um, you've probably sung it before. I'd looked on my, uh, on my Pandora account this morning just to see how many different musical versions there were of the, of the 23rd Psalm. Well, there were 29 different versions by different artists that were available just on my Pandora this morning. So the 23rd Psalm has been a favorite of Christians, favorite of the Jewish people for well, for thousands of years. And that's the Psalm that I want us to look at today. And it's a beautiful psalm. It's a powerful psalm. And if we take nothing else home from today, the simple act of having read it and heard it together will be worthwhile. And so I would like for us to read the 23rd psalm together. We'll have the words up here on the screen. Um, you are welcome to stand if you wish to read it. You are welcome to sit and read it if you'd like. But I'd like for us to read it together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <clears throat> and that's the 23rd Psalm, perhaps a slightly different version than you memorized as a child. Um, that's the version that happens to be in my Bible that I have in front of me today, a beautiful psalm, a psalm we often, of course, as I said here at funeral services, and with good reason, because it's a great comfort to know at the time of the loss of a loved one that, that the Lord is with us, that he is our shepherd. Um, but it's also a psalm that I think applies a great deal to our everyday lives, because the Lord doesn't want to be our shepherd just at times of funeral and loss, times of grief. He wants to be our shepherd every single day. So let's look at it together. Now, if we were going to summarize the psalm, we couldn't do much worse than the little girl in that opening illustration. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. And if you want to stop there and tune me out for the rest of the time, you might want to jump back in when we get ready to sing the final hymn. Um, but you can do that and take that home and you can live with that. The Lord is my shepherd. That is all that I want. Uh, because it all starts with our relationship with the shepherd, does it not? That's, that's the key. Everything else is, everything else is secondary. The, the rod and the staff, the green pastures, the quiet waters, the banquet table, all of that is great. But if we take nothing else home with us, the fact that the Lord is our shepherd and that we can trust him, therefore, to provide everything that we need, that, that is enough. That is enough. There's an old song. It's an old song now. It wasn't when I was growing up by the late Rich Mullins. Uh, many of you probably have heard it, Awesome God. And the chorus goes simply, Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And every time I sing that, every time I hear it, I think, yeah, that's the kind of God, that's the kind of shepherd I want. He, he reigns, first of all, with, with wisdom. That means he knows exactly what is best for me. I may not, but he knows. He reigns with power. Not only does he know what's best for me, but he is fully capable of doing what is best for me. And he reigns with love. And that means because he knows and because he can, since he loves, he will do what is best for me. And that's the kind of shepherd that I need. I don't know about you. A shepherd that knows best, can do what I need, and loves me enough to do all of that. Now David goes on in this psalm to give us some details about what this shepherd, uh, whom we can trust to have our very best interests at stake, what he provides 
for us. So let's look at some of those. There's a lot we could say about this psalm. I imagine we could preach several sermons on it. Um, but let's look at some of those. First of all, the Lord, our shepherd, provides us with rest. He makes me lie down in green pastures, David says. He leads me beside the quiet waters. Now, it might seem that the first thing that sheep need, uh, let alone us, is just simply the provisions of daily life. Sheep need food. Sheep need water. And while sheep may not need clothes and a roof over their head, we do. Um, but the psalmist actually kind of assumes that those things are already taken care of here. Because the sheep won't lie down to rest, it turns out, unless all of those basic necessities are taken care of. Unless they've, they've grazed for the morning, they're full, they've had something to drink, they're not scared, they're not agitated, they're not worried about anything. Everything is secure. And then they will lay down. So the picture that David is painting here is, is of midday when the sheep have done all of those things and everything is just right and the shepherd has made everything so that they can lay down and rest. And in fact, that's apparently what sheep, I don't, I've never raised sheep in my life, but that's apparently what sheep need to do in order to digest their food just like cows and other ruminants. So what David is saying there is that, yeah, we can trust the Lord to provide for our basic needs. But even more than that, we can trust the Lord to provide for us rest. Now, David is talking about more than just sleep and relaxation, though those aren't bad things. Those are certainly God-ordained things that he has created for our benefit. David is talking about the rest that comes from trusting in the shepherd. Knowing that everything's secure, everything's safe, all our needs are provided for, and we can rest in Him. He has everything under control. Now, the translation of that verse that we're probably most familiar with says, He makes us lie down, or He makes me lie down in green pastures. Now, it kind of sounds like the shepherd is forcing the sheep, forcing us to rest. And that's probably not really a good translation. It probably more means something like he just makes it possible for me to rest. But honestly, if you are like me, there are times that we need the shepherd to make us rest, don't we? There are times we are agitated. There are times we are worried. There are times we are too busy and we quite simply need the shepherd to make us rest. To put us in a position where we have to trust in him. Like if it's Saturday morning and you suddenly find out you're preaching the next day. Um, <laughs> and if you are brave, and if you are willing, maybe we could sometime dare to pray, Lord, make me trust you. Make me rest. That's a scary prayer to pray because I don't know what God's going to do. Um, but that may be what we need to pray sometimes. Well, the Lord provides us rest. The shepherd provides us as his sheep rest. He also provides us with wholeness. 
The next verses say, he restores my soul. Now, a lot of times when we hear that word soul, we have some kind of idea of some disembodied spirit, that part of us that kind of floats around and lives on after death. But really in the Hebrew, that word soul has more to do with the totality of the person, all that I am, all, all that is my person, that is my personality. And the word restore in the Hebrew, well, it simply means restore. It means to return something to its original intended state. So the shepherd wants to restore me to the person that I am meant to be. Now that person's been scarred, that person's been battered through my own sin, through the the traumas and the pains of life, and, and we've all been through those, and every one of us can cite those kinds of things that have left us less than who we were meant to be. And most of us spend a great deal of time and energy trying to pretend that we are somebody other than who we are meant to be or who we think we are. Um, But wouldn't you like to be the person God intended you, created you to be from the very beginning? Wouldn't you like to be that person who is whole, who is unbroken, who is untainted by this world? Well, we're not there yet. But that's what God wants for you, and that's what God wants for me. He wants to restore our soul. That's what the shepherd wants to do for us, to make us whole. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's probably the subject for a great many sermons. Um, Certainly, it involves fellowship with the shepherd. Uh, But David gives us kind of a clue in Psalm 19, just a few chapters prior to that, where with the exact same expression, he says this, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The law of the Lord, the word of God, if there's any place to begin with restoring our soul, it is to be in God's word, that very place that reflects his character, that reflects his heart, and begins to restore in us the very image of God we were created to have as we gaze on it, as we read it, as we reflect on it, and most of all, as we obey it. Well, the next thing the Lord does, the shepherd does for us, is he provides us with guidance. And I really like this translation, a newer translation perhaps makes it a little bit clearer in a sense, but I really like where it says in the New International Version that I have here, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, everybody wants guidance in life. Of course, we want guidance. We're not sure what to do, where to go, how to do it, what are the best choices to make. But notice what David does not say. He doesn't say, he guides me in paths of peace. That would be great. I would love to live in peace. David doesn't say he guides me in paths of prosperity. That would be really nice, Lord. He doesn't say he guides me in paths of of security and safety. Boy, that would be really nice if we knew everything was just like normal and there were no blips or bumps or trauma or hurt on the horizon. David doesn't say any of those things. He says, he guides me in paths of righteousness. 
Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about those other things, the security, the safety, the peace in our lives. He does. But all of those things are secondary to walking in paths of righteousness. See, God wants us to get in the habit of living life His way. That's what righteousness means, living by His standards, with His goals, with His priorities. That's what it means to walk in the path of righteousness. And notice the purpose of all that. The purpose is for his name's sake. So the Lord will be glorified in our lives. So other people will look at our lives and say, gosh, look what God has done for that person. That is the purpose. That is the purpose of the shepherd's guidance. Now, the interesting thing is that if we choose to follow the shepherd's leave, if we choose to walk in his paths of righteousness, to live life God's way for his name's sake, then that turns out to be best for us as well. It turns out that if we live God's way, life simply works out better. One of the foundational principles of Scripture, I think, is that the very God who created us, in fact, knows the best way for us to live life. Now, society may think his ways are old-fashioned. Society may think his ways are restrictive or arbitrary or simply too sacrificial. But when we do life his way, we discover that all those other things that people seem to want to strive for happiness, prosperity, peace, fulfillment, security, all those things are taken care of and our needs are provided for. Well, the shepherd provides for us rest. He provides for us guidance. He provides all of those things for us. He also provides for us courage and he provides for us protection. Now, this passage you've no doubt heard before, this section, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And that's the passage that's often read funerals and uh, with good reason. There's probably no darker valley that we have to walk through in life than dealing with death, whether that be the death of a loved one or our own imminent death as we face that. And we need that comfort, the comfort of knowing that the shepherd is right there with us in that dark valley. But there are plenty of other dark valleys in life too. And as much as we might wish it to be otherwise, God's people somehow don't seem to be exempt uh, from going through those dark valleys. The comfort, now God doesn't get us out of the valley. He doesn't take us from the valley. He doesn't keep us from having to go through the valley. But the comfort comes from the fact that he is with us in the valley. He walks with us. He's been through that valley himself. He knows what it's like. He's there to support us and walk alongside us. And nothing in that valley can do us harm. We don't need to be afraid of any evil because he is with us. David uses in the passage as well a couple of images to describe God's security and, and provision in that valley. He uses the images of the, of the shepherd's rod and the shepherd's staff. 
Now, you can read all kinds of things online, and believe me, I did yesterday, um, about how shepherds in Bible times used their rod and staff in different ways that may apply um, to us today as followers of Jesus. Um, but probably if I could sum it up, it would be two very simple ones. The rod and the staff represent security um, because the rod and the staff protect the sheep from predators and they protect the sheep from themselves. Sheep in Bible times, probably no different than from today, um, had a lot of natural enemies in the Holy Land. Um, David himself tells us in uh, the book of 1 Samuel how he at one point had to fight off a lion and a bear from the sheep that he was taking care of. Um, and there's not much sheep can do against a lion or a bear. Um, they can't really fight. They can't run very fast. They can't hide. Um, they are pretty much dependent on the care and the protection of the shepherd. And that's what the rod was for, a heavy club with a, with a big heavy head, as you can imagine. And apparently shepherds in Bible times were really good at flinging that club through the air and knocking that old bear or lion or wolf or whatever it was right on the head and chasing it away. Sheep need protection. And the Lord is there to protect us. But sheep also, and this probably comes to no surprise um, to us who know ourselves, sheep need protection from themselves. Because sheep are, they are not totally stupid, but at the same time, they are not very bright. Um, I read this story on the internet, and at first I absolutely could not believe it was true. I thought it was one of those many things made up that just circulate around because they make good sermon illustrations. Um, but then I found it on the, on the BBC and USA Today. In 2005, in Turkey, um, one morning in a village there, 450 sheep plunged to their death off of a cliff, one after the other. Their shepherds had gone to get some breakfast and left the sheep grazing, and apparently one sheep decided that it would be a good idea to walk off this cliff. And all of the other sheep followed. In fact, 1,500 sheep followed that one sheep off the cliff, one after the other. And the only reason more of them didn't die is because after about 450, there was a nice fluffy pile of sheep for the others <laughs> to land on. Um, so yeah, sheep need protection from themselves. And with the staff, well, the shepherd can kind of nudge the sheep if they're going the wrong way or if they're really stubbornly going the wrong way, kind of whack them a little bit. Um, with the crook at the end of the staff, maybe pull them back from that cliff edge, pull them out of a hole or a ravine or a stream in which they've fallen. Um, that's part of the job of the shepherd, to protect the sheep from themselves. And I don't know about you, um, but I am very grateful for a God who is patient enough with me and who loves me enough to protect me even from myself. Because there are plenty of times that I am foolish enough that if it were not for God, who knows what would have happened. And another of those prayers that if you're willing to pray it, it may be a dangerous one, but uh, you might be willing to pray as I have prayed, Lord, protect me from myself because I am prone to wander. I am prone to make foolish decisions. I am prone to disobey you. And maybe, Lord, sometimes you could just 
stop me before I do that or whack me upside the head with that staff of yours so that you get my attention. The Lord provides guidance. He provides protection. He provides courage. And the Lord provides a secure place for us. Now, We'll develop that here in just a second as you understand it. David seems to shift gears a little bit in his imagery in the psalm when he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Now the picture David paints there, if you imagine it in your mind, is actually kind of amusing. Um, Here is David and he's surrounded by enemies. And that was literally true for him at several times in his life. Um, They've got swords. They've got knives. They're scowling. Imagine they look like pirates. Um, They're jeering at David. They're calling him names. They want nothing more than his failure and his downfall. And in the midst of all of this, there's David, and he's ignoring them. And he can ignore them, well, because the God of the universe is giving a banquet And David is the guest of honor. So let the enemies scowl and brandish their swords and knives and cat calls at David um, all around him. He doesn't have to pay any attention to them because the God of the universe says, you are mine. You are guest of honor at a banquet that I am throwing for you. It reminds me very much of this verse that I think Steve preached on just a couple of weeks ago from Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, where Paul says these words, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? It's Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and also interceding for us. If we belong to him, if he has called us chosen and special, if Jesus Christ is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father, let anybody else say what they want. I know where I belong. I know whose I am. Now, the image of anointing the head with oil, there's lots of different interpretations of what that may mean, and and they're all good ones. They're all encouraging. Perhaps all of them are equally valid. I want to land on one that I think fits the context the best. In that day and age, when a king gave a banquet, it was customary to set apart the most honored guests by pouring perfumed oil over their head, anointing their head with oil. And we know and see throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, it was customary to to set apart as chosen um, priests and kings and prophets and, and even the holy utensils of the temple by anointing them with oil to say, these are special, these are set apart, these belong to God for a purpose. Well, I think that's what this image is all about. The banquet table, the Lord of the universe, I as the guest of honor, and here he is anointing me with oil. Are you surrounded by enemies? Do you feel that way at times? Maybe, maybe the enemies are real, literal enemies like David's were often. Maybe they are people 
who belittle you, who look down on you, who even sabotage you and would like nothing more than to see you fail. Or your enemies may be circumstances that are simply out of your control. Finances, health, job issues, relationships. The enemy may be your past, a past that continually crops up, that Satan is always bringing up and telling you that, well, you really can't succeed, you're really not going to change because this is what you were and this is who you are. Or maybe the enemy is something right now in the present. Maybe it's a weakness, a brokenness, an issue you are struggling with. Well, I will tell you whatever that enemy is, they are saying to you those messages like, you can't, you won't, you'll never make it, you don't matter. Well, if the Lord is my shepherd, if he has welcomed me at his banquet table as an honored guest, if he has anointed me with oil to set me apart for himself, for his purposes, then it does not matter what those enemies have to say. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter how powerful they think they are. It doesn't matter what messages they are saying to me. God has set me apart. He has given me a secure place and a purpose at his table in his kingdom. And my cup overflows with blessings of grace and mercy and love, peace, and purpose. There's a story I read yes, just yesterday, yes, as I was working on this, which I'd never heard before, and it was a beautiful story. It's a story of a, of a young missionary, Darlene Dibler Rose, who, together with her husband, had moved to the island of New Guinea, uh, near Australia, um, just before World War II. And uh, when World War II broke out, both Darlene and her husband were captured by the Japanese. And uh, Darlene spent four years in Japanese prison camps on the island of, of New Guinea. And she tells the story in a book that she wrote afterwards called Evidence Not Seen of, of all that she suffered uh, during those years in the prison camps. And, uh, and of her faith that kept her sane and allowed her to get through of it. And one occasion she tells about in the book is an account where she was, was very weak. She'd been sick, she'd been beaten, she'd been tormented by, by her captors. And, and one day they were, they were coming again into her cell. And she just didn't even feel the strength to stand up. And they were required to stand and to bow whenever the guards entered their cells. And she was so weak, and in that moment of weakness, she felt this craving for a banana. And she says this in the book, everything in me wanted one. I could see them, I could smell them, I could taste them. I got down on my knees and said, Lord, I'm not asking you for a whole bunch. I just want one banana. I looked up and pleaded, Lord, just one banana. Then I began to rationalize. How could God possibly get a banana to me through these prison walls? I would never ask the guard. If he helped me and was discovered, it would mean reprisals. There was more chance of the moon falling out of the sky than of someone bringing me a banana. Well, the next day after she prayed that prayer, she heard a guard approaching her cell again, and she assumed they were coming to take her out and beat her again. And so when the door opened, struggling to my feet, I stood ready to go. He opened the door, walked in, and with a sweeping gesture laid at my feet bananas. They're yours, he said, and they're all for Mr. Yamaji. 
Mr. Yamaji had been the commander of a previous prison camp where Darlene had been interred, a, a vicious, cruel, ruthless man. And here's what Darlene says. I sat down in stunned silence and counted them. There were 92 bananas. I pushed the bananas into a corner and wept. Lord, forgive me. I couldn't trust you enough to get even one banana for me. Just look at them. There are almost a hundred. I knew in those moments that nothing is impossible to my God. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Well, David closes the psalm by bringing us back to the beginning, to his relationship with the shepherd. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me, pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I cannot think of any greater comfort, any greater encouragement than those closing words of David. Whatever the dark valleys, whoever the enemies are, whatever we may go through, I can be confident that I will be next to, him next to me, this good shepherd all the days of my life and forever. It all comes down to our relationship with the shepherd. There's a story told, and it may or may not be true, I'm not sure, I read like half a dozen different versions of it, but this one was in a real book, so perhaps it's true, but it's a great story nonetheless, of a, of a special dinner party that was given in New York City, and it happened to be that at this dinner party there were two distinguished guests. Uh, one was the famous actor, Sir Richard Burton, and the other was Bishop Fulton Sheen. And at the end of the dinner party, the host asked both of these men, well-known um, for their speaking ability, to stand up and give a recitation of the 23rd Psalm. And so Sir Richard Burton stood up and with all of the flair and the eloquence of a trained actor, gave a, a resounding rendition of the 23rd Psalm and everyone applauded loudly after he was done. And then afterwards, the bishop stood up and with much less flair and much less drama, recited the 23rd Psalm. And at the end, everyone was silent, with reverential silence. And when uh, Sir Richard Burton was asked afterwards what was the difference, he said simply, well, I know the 23rd Psalm, but he knows the shepherd. And that's the question that we come down to at the end of looking at this psalm today. Do we know the shepherd? Because it's a wonderful thing to read this psalm and to read its incredible words of encouragement, but it all comes down to whether or not he is my shepherd. He is your shepherd. Now, about a thousand years after David penned those words, his descendant, also the Son of God, um, said these words in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And that is indeed what Jesus did, so that we can be able to say, he is my shepherd, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life, paid the price so that our sins could be forgiven and we, be, we could be united with that shepherd forever. And so that the words of Psalm 23 would indeed be our words. The Lord is my shepherd and that's all I want. Well, we're going to sing a song of, of invitation, a song of prayer. And as the music team makes its way back up front, I just want you to consider a couple of things for this week. Um, is the Lord your shepherd? Maybe he has been your shepherd for many years. And if so, praise God. But maybe you're here today and you're wondering, how do I get in touch with this good shepherd who will so provide for me and give me that security and peace that I need? If, if you have a prayer request, if you want to find out what it means to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, Lord, and Good Shepherd, come forward and, and we'll pray for you up here. We'll be glad to talk with you during the week. Will you come as we stand and as we sing?